Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Previously in our study of the book of Romans chapter 6, Pastor Murphy has been showing us that the believer is dead to sin and therefore has victory over the sin nature. Today we'll see when and how this death of sin occurred. All right, turn with me, please, to your Bibles in the book of uh, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, I would like to read from verse number 1, and then we'll come to our text in verse number 3. I do want to read from verse number 1 of the book of Romans chapter 6. I hope you don't think I'm spending too much time on, on this subject. Uh, I think by the time we finish with this subject, and if you really grasp the truth that is taught here, it should really make a significant difference in your life, especially those uh, who are struggling with some habitual sin that you can't seem to get a handle on. You know, as we get older, I, I don't have the vicious temptations I used to have when I was a young man. I would never, uh, never have temptations because I'm human flesh and I have a sinful nature. But I will tell you that the tug is not there as it used to be when I was much younger. You know, I always am amazed that uh, there's some old men that come along the aisle and they've been the way of the world. They've enjoyed every pleasure that is conceivable and then they give their life to the Lord and then they make the boast they don't have any desire anymore I smile when I hear that because they're so jaded they desire that is no longer um, powerful and uh, there's no credit to them it's the young person who surrenders to Christ and is living in the, in the grass of these habitual sins that really it's the person I think that probably deserves more credit than the older person who has, over the years, it has waned and the, the, the power of the, that has, has kind of declined. So Romans chapter 6, reading from verse number 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that the old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed 
from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we should also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God, to Jesus Christ, O Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye shall obey it in the lust thereof. Let's pray. Father, meet with us this morning around your word. Guide our thoughts as we gather them around scripture. And give us the grace to have simplicity and to present your truth in a manner that can easily be grasped by your people. We are left with only one resource uh, that you give to us, and that is your word. The Holy Spirit that's been given to us at salvation uses this word as we do our pilgrim walk, that we might have greater victory and greater triumph over that monster of sin that you have delivered us from. Our problem is not in the stars. Our problem is in ourselves. Our sinful nature that craves for fulfillment. Our lust or desires that the Bible talks about so frequently. It is not the id or the ego or the super ego. It's the flesh. It's the desires of the flesh. That's the real problem. This is the center of the battle in the believer's life even as it was in his pre-conversion experience. I pray that we might get to the truth and the understanding that the cross of Christ did not just deliver us from our acts of sins, but it also enabled us to have power over the sin nature. We pray that as the Apostle Paul works his way through this chapter and we apply our minds to the text, that your spirit will enlighten us as to how this took place and what this really means for us as believers. Help us to know that the abundant life that you promise, the life of victory that you talked about in your gospel is possible. That we no longer have to be slaves to sin. That we must not let sin have dominion over us. And that the cross has made all of this possible. Open our understanding therefore this morning uh, to this truth and help us to fully comprehend its meaning. Would you help me this morning as well? And would you give me the wisdom that's required uh, to bring out what your word teaches on this matter? And would you allow your Holy Spirit to use the word as a cutting tool uh, that severs the mind from the sinful thoughts that might engage our mind so that we can't grasp what is there. May he act as an intervention uh, to 
dispel the darkened understanding and give us the enlightenment that comes only from you. We look to you now. We ask for your help and your grace and your favor. And we just pray, Lord, that whatever results uh, would come as a consequence of this message, that it will be down to your glory and to the benefit of the hearer, and that we will see even more victory in our lives this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Romans chapter 6 is no doubt the greatest New Testament text that deals with the problem of the believer and his relationship to post-conversion sin. The basic argument that Paul gives in this text is that when a person is converted, a supernatural work is done in that believer's life that enables the believer to overcome the tyranny of habitual sin. Now Paul makes an incredible statement in verse number 2. It is one of the most stupendous statements that you'll ever find where Paul claims that the believer is dead to sin. Not that he's dying to sin, but he's dead to sin. Unfortunately, in our translation in the King James Version, it gives you the idea that we are dying to sin. But that's not what Paul is teaching here. And that is a, a statement that is so incredible, so extraordinary, that people, when you read it, you wonder in your mind, can this really be true? Because our experience seems contrary to what Paul teaches here. Okay. And of course, we will explain why that is so. So, uh, the claim is that we are dead to sin. And uh, I want to ask the question, is this a slip of the pen? Did Paul meant to say that we are dying to sin and maybe by mistake he put we are dead to sin? Well, there's no doubt in my mind that it's not a mistake because six different times in this same chapter, Paul uses the same word, that we are dead to sin. So it can't be a mistake. It's not a slip of the pen. See? It's a deliberate choice of words that Paul uses to let the believer know you no longer have to live under the domination of your sin nature. Now in every case where Paul uses this word dead, I mentioned to you that it's in the aorist tense. And let me be very, very clear. I know you're not Greek scholars. I'm not a Greek scholar myself. But I have had two years of it done intermediate Greek. And I do know, uh, as far as the grammar is concerned, what the aorist tense is. The aorist tense is the past tense. It's a tense that has to do with something that happened in the past that will never be repeated again. That's the point of the passage. It's in the aorist. You were dead and you are dead once and for all. So you don't work, have to work on being dead to sin. The Bible says it happened. And we'll point out, of course, that it happened on the cross. In other words, this death that Paul speaks about in verse 2 is a completed text. And to let you understand that I have labored to execute this passage, looking at the grammar, looking at the syntax, and looking at the meaning of words, so to give you some clarity as to what this passage is teaching. 
Now, there are some passages that when you come to the Bible, the meaning almost bunks off the surface. You read a passage and immediately you know what the passage is teaching. There are some other passages of the scripture that in order to get this meaning, you have to dig. Uh, you have to think and you have to investigate. I think that this passage in Romans really is one of those latter categories. And uh, the Apostle Paul is reminding us of what has taken place. But Peter tells us in the book of 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13 that we must what gird up the loins of our minds. That means that there are times when we have to be mentally alert if we're going to grasp what the, teach, what the scripture ta- teaches. And I think this is one case where you have to mentally engage your mind this morning as we probe into the mechanics of how this event occurred that actually brought about victory over the sinful Adamic nature that Paul talks about in this passage. So I want to look at it again this morning. And I want to say it is not a hyperbole. I want to say this is not Pauline jargon that he's using in this particular passage. And I want to say that Paul did not miswrite. I think that uh, this is a biblical truth that Paul wants the believer to understand and for the believer to grasp. So the question concerns us this morning is this. If the believer is dead to sin, when did that occur and how did that occur? That's the question that Paul is going to answer in verse 3 down to verse number 11. He's already made a statement in verse 2. Now he's going to explain how that took place uh, in the believer's life so that we can have this victory over this matter of besetting sin. You know, if you were with us for the book of Romans, study the book of Romans, you remember that we came to chapter 5 and verse 10. The Apostle Paul already has alluded to this whole matter of how we became in Christ, how we became united to Christ. You remember that Paul said in Romans chapter 5 and verse 10 that we share in the life of Christ. We should be saved in his life. Not by his life, by the way. In the Greek language, not by his, it's in his life, in the sphere of his life. That is where Paul introduced the idea that we have been placed into Christ. And you remember after he did that in chapter 5 and verse 11, the Apostle Paul goes on and draws a contrast between when we were in Adam and now that we are in Christ. In other words, he began to introduce this doctrine of the believer's union with Christ at conversion way back in chapter 5 and verse 11. And he already explained it that we were taken out of Adam and we are now placed in Christ. A work took place at the cross. Now in chapter 6, he's going to elaborate on this and to explain how this took place in the believer's life. So this is the doctrine that Paul expounds this morning. And I believe it's one of the great doctrines that if it's fully understood, you would have so much assurance of where you stand with God. You know, people have doubts. Am I saved today? Am I saved tomorrow? One morning the sun shines and you, you're on the top of the world and you can almost see God. The next morning everything is done in the drama. You can hardly see him. You can't see him anything. What, where do you get your confidence from then? That you're standing, it comes back to this whole matter. When you begin to understand doctrine, that whether the weather changes or whether something happened to you and your feelings change, 
The fact that you don't change your position. Feelings don't move you out of Christ and put you back in Adam. Bad experience don't take you out of Christ and put you back in Adam. Whether you feel good or feel bad or things are going your way or not going your way, you are in Christ once you are saved. You are taken out of Adam and you are now placed in Christ. That is where you get your assurance from. That strong understanding of biblical doctrine. Otherwise, you'll go through life always wavering. I was discussing this whole matter with somebody some time ago. And I told him that I've met one person in my whole life who told me they've never had a doubt about their salvation. One person in my whole life who told me that. And I was shocked when they told me that. Because every single believer at some point in their life have had doubts. No question about that. You wrestle with doubt sometimes. The devil will come to you and tell you, you're a Christian. If you do this, it wouldn't bother you. Know, you're still saved. And the moment you do it, he says, you know, how you be saved you did that? He's a mastermind on these kind of things. So he gets you to, to, to do things and then play with your matter. How can you be saved and do that? When you are confident, he said, but you're already saved. So if you do that, it doesn't matter. He plays games with us. And I hope sooner or later we begin to understand that these games that he plays are designed always to bring a reproach to the, to the name of Christ and to bring him into disrepute because of what we do. See, you remember he's called the what? The accuser of what? The brethren. Don't forget that. Uh, he's the one that the Bible says accuses the brethren day and night before God. We don't understand this mystery, but somehow he has access. And the Bible says he accuses the believer before God. So he, he points out to your life and my life when we're doing something wrong. Hey, is that your child? Is that what it means to be born again? Is that what your son accomplished on the cross? Look at him, how he lives. He's a shadow of what he should be. And then we have an advocate called Jesus who stands and says, Father, I died for him. He's under my blood. See? That's why we have an advocate, by the way. See? And I don't know if you understand the biblical teaching on this matter. It's all, of course, mysterious to us why he should have access. But we are revealed, these things are revealed to us and we need to embrace uh, these, these truths. Now the question this morning, of course, as well is, why haven't believers who read Romans chapter 6 grasp this truth? Why has it taken people so long to grasp this truth? I want to give you a reason why I think it explains why believers miss what this particular passage is teaching. I think the primary reason that believers miss what Paul is teaching here is the fact that the form of the expression that Paul uses to explain the doctrine. And when I say the form of expression, Paul uses the word baptize. And the moment we hear baptize, what do we think about? Water baptism. So the reason why we miss Paul's teaching here is because the moment that word baptism is mentioned in our minds, we might go to the idea that he's talking about water baptism. But that's not what Paul is talking about in this passage. Water baptism doesn't unite you to Christ. It doesn't take you out of Adam and place you in Christ. It has no gracious, efficacious means of power in your life. Water baptism doesn't it's not what Paul is dealing with in this passage. And I think the reason why people don't grasp the teaching in this passage is because that word baptism somehow 
causes us to go off on a tangent and to think that this is what Paul is talking about in this passage. Now, I would like to give you some reasons uh, why people, how people interpret this particular passage and uh, so you will understand why it is so easily misunderstood. The first thing I want to talk about this morning is that there are people who interpret this passage. We call them the sacerdotal view. And what that means is people who believe, like the Catholics believe, that baptism has some saving efficacy in it. They call baptism a what? A sacrament. And they have seven sacraments in the Catholic Church. And each sacrament is supposed to impart grace to you. So when you partake of these things, they're supposed to infuse grace in you and, and, and impart grace to you. So the, the view that is held by this group called the Saturday group, that those who believe that what Paul is talking about here is that when a person is baptized in water, that what happens to that person is that person becomes united with Christ and that person becomes in Christ. You ever heard of the word baptismal regeneration? Whether you be a Scottish Catholic or a Roman Catholic or Anglican Catholic, all of them that believe in baptismal regeneration believe that the uh, physical baptism in terms of the uh, immersion baptism or in terms of sprinkling with water, that that somehow unites the person. to They believe that it has power in it. And that is why in the Catholic Church, Two things are vitally important in the Catholic Church when it comes to salvation. The church and the priest. Because to have salvation, it must come to the Catholic Church. And to have real, it must come to the priest. So to be properly baptized, you have to be baptized by the priest. It gives the priest tremendous power. And that's why people were kept in darkness for so many years. So if you didn't belong to the Catholic Church and the, and the priest didn't baptize you, you were damned. It gave the priest tremendous power. And you know where that power came from? It came from the idea that when the priest administers baptism to you, your original sins are washed away. It's called baptismal regeneration. And what it means then that at that point, you become united with Christ. You become part of Christ as a result of baptism. Now you know that we as Baptists don't believe that. And the reason why we don't believe it is not because the Catholic Church teaches it, because the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches clearly that a person is saved before he's baptized. He's not saved by being baptized. I hope we understand that. Remember in the book of Acts chapter 8, when Philip met the Ethiopian eunuch and he presented to him Christ after reading the book of Isaiah, uh, the Bible said the man believed. And then we told us they're riding in a chariot. The Ethiopian said, there's much water here. Why can I not be baptized? And you remember what Peter said, what Philip says? If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, then you can be baptized. In other words, belief comes before baptism. Conversion comes before baptism. The sacerdotal group says, no, what really happens is that when you get baptized, you become saved. Your original sins is washed away. You become joined to Christ. This is not what Paul is teaching in this passage. You remember also in the case of uh, the, the Philippian jailer. 
He asked the question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Well, Paul told him, there's a lot of water, let's go and get baptized. No, Paul said what? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be there. And then the Bible, after he believed, then he was baptized. Belief precedes baptism. I want to say that because there are groups of people who miss the teaching of what Paul is dealing with in this passage. And they who belong to the Catholic Church or the Scottish Church or the Anglican Church really believe that when a person is baptized, it means that they get saved and their original sin is taken away. That is not what Paul is teaching here in this passage. He's not dealing with the subject of baptismal regeneration. Let me point out something else to you why this could not be the case. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 14 to 17, you'll find that the Apostle Paul does not give any prominence to this matter of baptism. Uh, what I mean by, look at 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1 with me for just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and look at verse number 14 to 17. He said, I thank God that I baptized none of you. Now, let me ask a question. Can you imagine a man like the Apostle Paul who was called to preach the gospel and who went and all over the place he went, he dotted the landscape with churches. Can you imagine Paul saying that he thanked God he didn't baptize anybody if they were saved by baptism? Does that make sense to anybody in here? Absolutely not. Then he goes on to say, uh, he said, I thank God I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. Lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize but to what? Preach the gospel. If there was any saving efficacy, any saving grace in baptism whatsoever, for Paul to make a statement like this, clearly uh, would indicate that the Apostle Paul doesn't really grasp the doctrine of salvation. So when you uh, hold to the view that the Apostle Paul is here dealing with the whole matter of baptismal regeneration, uh, you're really missing the point because this is the same man that says that he thanks God he didn't baptize certain people. Lest, of course, they attach his name to the baptism and be boasting that it's Paul that baptized him and miss the whole point that it's all about Christ and not about Paul or Peter see, in this passage. The other thing I want to point out to you that it could not refer to baptismal regeneration is that you know it's possible to be, you know it's possible to believe and be baptized and still not be saved? Do you know that? I agree. Do you know it's possible for you to believe, be baptized, and not be saved? We got a classic case of this in the Bible, by the way. Look with me at Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, reading from verse number 13. Number 12 reads, And when they believed Philip's preaching, the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Next verse. Then Simon himself, what? Believed also. And when he was what? Baptized. What he did? He continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and the signs which were done. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard 
that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive what? The Holy Spirit. For as yet he had not fallen upon them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17. And they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy And when Simon saw through laying on of hands the apostles, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them what? Money. Saying, give me this power that on whomsoever I lay my hands be received the Holy Ghost. But Peter said to him, thy money perish with thee because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in the matter, for thy heart is what? Not right with God. He said in verse, repent. Here's a man. Hear Philip's preach. Apparently believe what he says. Is baptized, but still unregenerate. And so if, if it's referring to baptism, baptism has no saving efficacy. See? You need to understand. If you're depending on your baptism to save you, you've missed the boat. And of course, the other thing I could point out to you that, uh, about this matter of baptism is that um, the thief on the cross was near, never baptized. If, if baptism was necessary for salvation, I know what would have happened. The Lord would say, let me take you down from the cross. Let me baptize you. Go back on the cross. I go back on the cross. <laughs> and we'd be saved. He said, but today I'm going to be in paradise. I said all of that because one of the most confusing beliefs about this verse, this verse is, uh, and the Catholics believe this, that, that Paul is referring here to baptismal regeneration. They really believe that when a person is baptized, that Grace is imparted to them. They're taken out of the old Adam, placed in Christ, and they're united with Christ forever. That's what they teach. But it's a false doctrine. Now, could I say this? Can you think of the millions of people who, in the Catholic Church who believe that? And who are depending on the fact that they were baptized legitimately by the church and by a priest, and depending on that to get into heaven? Do you have a family member who's a Catholic? You better explain to them that if that's what they're depending on, they're going to get the biggest shock in their life. There's no saving efficacy in baptism. That's the first uh, doctrine I want to make very clear, the first view on this subject, so that when we're dealing with this matter, the believer being baptized into Christ, uh, to let you understand that Paul is not here dealing with this matter of baptismal regeneration. The second view. There are those who disavow the sacramental view on baptism that is not baptismal generation. But there are those that say that when Paul talks about here, here being baptized into Christ's death and raised into Christ's new life, there are those that say that what Paul is referring to here is that when believers were baptized, they made a vow. So when Paul talks about being baptized into Christ and being raised with Christ, they said that, you know what this means? It means that when the believer came to the point where he's baptized, he would disavow his connection with the old life and said he's dead to the old life and now he's alive to the new life. So it has to do with the vow that is made. But again, when you look at this particular passage, the big problem with it is that Paul does not emphasize any concept of the vow. And Paul does not emphasize that this is something the believer does. This is something that is done to the believer. It's not that the believer is baptized 
when he does is that he is baptized by God. He's, he, something happens to him. Not that he does something. So it cannot refer to the matter of making vows. That I come to the baptism and I make a vow that I'm finished with the old life. I'm dead to the old life. I'm now, now alive to the new life. That's not what Paul is talking Paul is saying this is something that was done to you. It's not something that you do. Something that's done to you. So you cannot here also refer to this matter of not only is it not the Saturday teaching on baptism regeneration. But it also has nothing to do with you making any kind of baptismal vows when you become a believer. That's not what Paul is teaching in this particular passage. The third view that is given to this passage when it talks about we are baptized into Christ's death. Is that those that say that it means that when we get baptized, we are actually coming under the influence of Christ. And that's how they interpret this passage. That when Paul says you're baptized into Christ, it means you're baptized into Christ's influence. You come under Christ's influence. Now, where did they get that from? Well, let me show you where they get that from. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and the sea. And they take this particular passage because what is teaching here in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is that all the Israelites that came through the Red Sea, all the Israelites that were under the cloud that overshadowed them, all that they all came under the influence of Moses. They were baptized into Moses in the sense that they came under Moses' authority, Moses' leadership. And so they take this passage to mean that when it talks about being baptized in the passage chapter 3, baptized into his death, it would be coming under the influence of Christ and his death. But again, the Apostle Paul is not talking about that particular matter in this particular passage. It's Paul is dealing with something far beyond that, where something literally happened to us. And as a result of that event happening to us, our sin nature was severed in the believer's life. So that the new nature is no longer controlled by the sinful nature. There's a severance, a, a death between there, See? enabling the believer not to practice habitual sin. This is what Paul is dealing with. So he's not talking about coming under the, the influence. He's talking about something that really happened at your conversion. And the final uh, view that I need to talk about very quickly is the one that we use so frequently uh, when we talk about baptism that it is kind of a, a pictorial representation, a kind of a dramatic enactment. Of the death, burial, and resurrection. So we, we often teach that when a believer is put down in the water, he's what? We said he's buried. And then we say that when he comes out, he's what? He resurrected. So we say some kind of dramatic enactment of the matter. But again, I repeat, this is not something the believer does. This is something that's done to the believer. And while it's great truth that when we are baptized and immersed, it shows our death, that's not what Paul is teaching in this passage. Paul is saying that we are dead. To sin. And we became dead to sin as a result of baptism. Now you've got to make one or two choices. Either you begin to understand what Paul is teaching here. Or you've got to give the Catholics credit. 
Because they literally believe that when a person is baptized in water, something miraculous happens. So his original sins are washed away. He's taken out of Christ, out of Satan, out of Adam and put in Christ. So the question is, what then is Paul teaching in this passage? What's the biblical doctrine that Paul is trying to get at? I think the only way that we will ever understand this passage is when we grasp what is taught in the book of Corinthians chapter 12. And I would ask you to turn with me there for just a moment. The book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And verse 13. For by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jew or Gentiles, whether we be born or free, we have been made to drink of one spirit. I believe that this is what Paul is talking about. This is the baptism that the Apostle Paul is talking about. Now, however we interpret the passage There are five things that we must keep in mind to understand what Paul means in verse number three, that we are baptized in the death of Christ. Number one, it has to do, as I pointed out so frequently, it has to do with the fact that um, it is something that was accomplished that unites us to Christ and puts us in Christ. So whatever interpretation we give, we have to find some means of baptism that connected us with Christ and made us one with him. Number two, whatever we interpret this baptism must mean that that baptism involves the severance of the sin nature from the believer's life. So the believer no longer is controlled by the sin nature. So whatever baptism, there's something happened that must have severed that sin nature. Thirdly, it means that whatever happened at the baptism Paul talks about in verse three, it gives power to the believer to enable the believer to have victory over habitual sin that's the third thing that paul is pointing about and the fourth thing that we have to face is that every single evangelical commentator that you read that gives a commentary on on romans chapter 6 every one of them agree that what the apostle paul is teaching here is that it has to do with the believer's union with christ at the point of conversion that he's placed in Christ at the point of, he's united to Christ. The question is, how did that happen? And Paul argues that the way it happened is that a baptism took place that brought about all those results that I spoke about in just a moment. We became incorporated as believers into the body of Christ. And the only answer to that is 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. That we were all baptized by one spirit into the body of Christ. You remember that Christ is the head and we're the body. And the body became part of Christ when the Holy Spirit baptized the believer and placed him in the body of Christ. This is what Paul is talking about. So the moment you got saved, a work was done. And by the way, you know, this is the work like regeneration. 
When you got saved, you got regenerated. The Holy Spirit regenerated you. The Holy Spirit changed your nature. If that didn't happen, you mean you're not saved. He gave you a new nature. That was implanted in you. But mother, he sealed you as well. And we are sealed until what? The day of redemption. But the Bible says he also anointed us when we got saved. But not only that, he also baptized us into the body. He is the one that put us in Christ and utilized us to Christ. This is what Paul is talking about. This is the baptizing work of the Spirit. It's not water baptism that puts you in Christ. It is the baptism of the Spirit that unites you to Christ and incorporates you into the body. In other words, we are joined to Him and we are joined to one another. And that joining has only taken place because of the work of the Holy Spirit. It is a supernatural work. It's a spiritual work. It's a mystical work. But it's a biblical truth that is taught in the Bible. Just like you must believe that you are sealed and that you are regenerated and that you are anointed. You have to believe as a believer that you were baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. This is a doctrine that faith must take hold of. And this is what Paul is concerned for the believer to understand this great doctrine. And it's essential for us if we're going to get victory over sin to grasp the teaching of what really took place when we were saved. Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us more about the believer's baptism into Christ's death. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.